Hello, I'm Matt Carpenter, and this is the Good Life Podcast. Hello, we are back with the Good Life Podcast. I am Matt Carpenter, and I'm pleased today to have my fellow elder at Trinity Reformed Church and good friend Jason Cherry. Jason has written a book called The Culture of Conversionism and the History of the Altar Call. So, Jason, thanks for joining us today. Glad to be here. The, the question of why we have altar calls is something I never asked when I was in a church that had one. It was very common. It was ordinary. But your book is helpful in that it gives us not only how churches have done things in the last 200 years, but also you you begin with talking about how things were well before 200 years ago, going back to the Reformation and even before that. So let's start off, though, just with, with the initial term, which may throw some people off, conversionism. How do you define conversionism? Well, when we talk about conversion as Christians, we're, you know, on a basic level, we're just talking about how someone becomes a Christian. Um, and, and on a more theological level, you know, Protestants tend to divine, define conversion as you know, faith and repentance. Uh, conversionism, however, uh, has a much more narrow uh, definition of conversion. And conversionism, uh, as I use the term, has really a couple of features. Uh, one feature of conversionism is that it takes the conversion event and places it at the center of the Christian life. And so everything else outside of that conversion event is secondary if it matters at all. And it's this crisis conversion event that's at the center of the Christian life. And so you know, anything else, whether you're talking about an understanding of theology, uh, pursuing virtue, understanding how to live the Christian life, all of that is drained of meaning and urgency and energy in conversionism. What matters is, have you had a crisis conversion experience? And if you have, then the other things are optional. And the second feature of conversionism is uh, that it's a crisis conversion. Uh, so the idea of a Damascus Road experience is the normative definition of how you become a Christian. And it doesn't matter if you're talking about a child who's raised in a Christian family in a healthy church, or if you're talking about some hardened sinner who late in life turns to Christ. The conversion process is much the same for each of them, kind of this crisis conversion, this Damascus Road experience. So in your book, part of your point is that this crisis conversion, the, the, the necessity of a crisis conversion is not and has not always been with us in Christianity. That's right. And it's really a very new thing. Uh, and you can kind of trace the development of this in terms of Protestants going back to the Reformation. So if you go back to you know the early church uh, you know, in the medieval period or just, you know, the, the first three or four hundred years of the church, uh, the action of becoming a Christian, it was not assumed that it was a, a Damascus Road experience. It was not assumed to be uh, a crisis conversion. They were really operating under a basic catechumenal process, uh, which is just referring to this kind of nurturing, this intentional nurturing of children raised in 
the faith. And the idea was that you're raising these covenant children, you're shaping their faith and their habits and their thoughts and their actions and their feelings, uh, and they are growing into the baptism they received as infants. And so, yeah, you've got, you've got stories of dramatic conversions. You've got the Apostle Paul. Uh, you've got Augustine's story of his own conversion and some other notable figures in the early church who, who are not raised in uh, a Christian New Covenant community who have these moments, uh, but that's not really the normal way they viewed conversion. And then as you move into the medieval period or the late medieval period, of course, we see the development of the sacerdotal system, which is just basically the idea that you know, saving grace is transferred to these individuals through the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. And all of that was really ironed out by about 1200. They had the seven sacraments. And so as long as you, you know, go through the seven sacraments, uh, then you receive the grace necessary to be saved. And of course, in response to that sacerdotal system and some of the abuses there and some of the, 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 the wrong ways they were defining the process of becoming a Christian, uh, of course you see the Reformation come, come about. And, and when you get to the Reformation time period, um, one of the things they're looking at is this very thing. It's how should we understand how someone becomes a Christian. And so when you look at what Luther's doing on this question in terms of uh, conversion. Luther's doing what most of those people that come after him in the Reformation want to do, and is they want to separate conversion from the sacerdotal process. And so for Luther, the process of becoming a Christian started with infant baptism, and it was followed by this catechetical instruction during childhood. It happened in the home, it happened in the church. And for Luther, once the child reached what he called the age of discretion, then they were supposed to make a public profession of faith. But it wasn't this big dramatic thing. Uh, it, was, it was largely a family and church process. And so you have that developing in with Luther's theology, but what quickly happens for the Lutherans there in Central Europe is uh, the process of, of working up to that profession of faith became very intellectualized. And so you saw this sort of reaction to that with the German pietists. So you've got and you've got Philip Jacob Spainer coming along, and, and, and German pietism is born, and what they're doing is they're saying, well, uh, yes, that doctrinal knowledge is, is good and, and everything, but, but really the, the person needs to make a, a personal and emotional confession of faith. And, and you know, so you go from Luther, and you've got the German pietists, and then you've got a, a figure like Martin Bucer, who, who was German himself, but his influence was spread far beyond just Central Europe. And what Bootser is doing is, is, is that process of uh, making a public confession of faith. Well, Bootser also wanted it to be public. He wanted it to be heartfelt. Uh, he wanted that faith to be expressed during a confirmation process where there was something of uh, you know, uh, an interview or a, a process of determining that this person has you know, a, a minimal amount of doctrinal knowledge. Uh, and really he kind of, it's a classic evangelical thing that he is uh, wanting to see out of these people. Um, these, and mainly it's children raised in, in these covenant homes. Um, Can I interrupt? Yes, sir. Just to ask a question briefly. So the idea of one publicly declaring, uh, I am a Christian, making a public profession that would be the end result of a, of a confirmation period. That did not begin with Luther, though, did it? I mean, that, that, that was going on before the Reformation yes. happened. Yes, Yeah, a lot of these things are just kind of a shadow version of what was happening in the Roman Catholic 
uh, church in the late medieval period. Right. Yeah. So, so it, it's not. So, so Luther did not just come up with, or, or Boots or, or the reformers say, we need a uh, a public profession where this twelve or thirteen year old is now doing this. And right. and I would add, it, it's also that was required, even even though most of the reformed churches, or all, all, all the the standard reformed churches at the time practiced paedo baptism. Most of them did not allow communion until confirmation. That's right. So, 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 so there was that, and then since Bootser was a uh, a, a sovereign grace thinking re- reformer, Calvin though, what did how did John Calvin was he like Bootser in this? Was he somewhat distinct, or what was the? I think Calvin was closer to to Bootser on this than 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 some of the other figures. Uh, but yes, Calvin, of course, is wanting a, a, a personal confession of faith that's beyond just you know, uh, reciting some doctrinal knowledge. You know, he is wanting that. But, but Calvin is largely following Bootser's influence on that. Sure. Okay. Yeah, right, because Bootser had quite a bit of influence on Calvin. Yeah. But so. one of the things that's unique in that Reformation period, you know, the spectrum of Reformation groups is pretty wide. If you've got on the one side, one extreme or the Anabaptist. And let's say the other side of that spectrum is the Anglicans. But what's really interesting is that the Anabaptists, of course, they're requiring a profession of faith. Uh, Of course, they've got their own spin on it because, of course, they're they're saying, well, baptism can't happen until this person has a profession of faith and kind of works through, you know, their notion of of conversion in their prescribed way. But even the Anglicans uh, in the 16th century and 17th century, they also wanted a personal confession of faith. And they're emphasizing this. And you can yes. even see this in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Yes. He's got basically a sinner's prayer of sorts in there that's very heartfelt. And, and, and this, this is representative of how they, uh, how they wanted to see a, a child being raised in the covenant community. And I think the thing that matters here is um, as, the, as, the, as the different Reformation groups are emphasizing the personal confessional element, um, that's a good thing. That's that's classic evangelical thinking. It, it, it's where the idea of a personal relationship with Jesus comes from, and there's a lot of good there. But one of the interesting elements there is that that personal confessional element was featured in all of the Reformation groups, even when they disagreed with each other on a lot of other things. And that's what's setting the table for when American, you know, the, the colonists coming to the New World, and you have this kind of American evangelical doctrines developing. They're taking those common developments and they're then going to do something with it okay. and, and make it Americanized. And that's where I think this conversionism culture comes from. So whatever Europe does, America does three times more. Uh, and, and, and we think it's certainly much better. So, okay, so, so we skip from, from that talking about the background, which is helpful information to now, we're, we're looking at the early elements in the United States of revivalism. Mm-hmm. So, could you def, you know talk about what was revivalism? How did we get it? Uh, and this, of course, includes the First Great Awakening, which is going to plant the seed, or it, it, maybe you could say second generation. If, if the Reformation was, was first generation emphasis on these things, and it's not literally following generation as on like a timetable, but the next thing we see is the first great awakening, 
and the rise of revivalism. So, so talk about how that pushed the pushed the envelope a little further. Yes, and so you know, if we're talking about re revivals and revivalism, one way to define revivalism is just these 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 uh, outpourings of the Spirit in a great degree. And so uh, you've got people who need to come to Christ in large number, and then they are coming to Christ in large number. And so that might be the, the broadest way to define revivalism. And of course, that then has expressions in the first and second Great Awakening that are um, that are similar, but but also very different. And so you know, some people have looked at uh, you know, they, a lot of people have made a distinction between revival and revivalism. And I'm thinking here of maybe Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones and Ian Murray, his assistant and biographer and historian. Uh, and one of the things they've done, and I think there's some, it's helpful here, but it's not an exhaustive help. Uh, what they do is they say is, well, revivalism is when man is trying to stir up the spirit with these certain methods. And revival is a more authentic work of the spirit. And then what they want to say is that the first Great Awakening is a real revival, and the second Great Awakening is just revivalism. And, and I think there is some truth there, but it's not the whole story, because I think it's better to look at the first and second Great Awakening not as contrast, but, but, but as building on each other in such a way that the second Great Awakening and all its excesses would not have been possible without the first Great Awakening. And so really the first Great Awakening is just paving the way for what we then see in the second Great Awakening. And so if you if you take you know what's at the heart of in that first Great Awakening and some of that revival or revivalism moments in the first Great Awakening, what they're doing, and think about Edwards and Whitfield and the big names that most people know, they're taking the essence of Christianity and they're locating it as an experience in the heart. And and, and for Whitfield especially at his Right. At his events, this would lead to large numbers of very dramatic, very emotional conversion experiences. And, and Whitfield himself was a very dramatic, uh, perhaps too dramatic, uh, preacher. J j just from some of what we hear, I, I remember the story Abraham Lincoln, not Abraham Lincoln, he would have been, it would have been good for him to go to a revival <laughs> meeting, but uh, for someone like Let's see. Benjamin Franklin, when he went to the Whitfield, he, yes. he said he he would not take money with him when he was at a Whitfield meeting because he would just give it all in the offering yes. plate. Uh, so 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 Whitfield was a passionate speaker and a good dramatic preacher. But uh, it's possible for people who are very dramatic to elicit things from the public that may not always be God's spirit. Yeah, and, and they're when they're that emotional, they can be temporary. And, and with Whitfield, I think uh, that, that one biography of him was called The Divine Dramatist. And I think that's exactly right with Whitfield. He wanted to be an actor. You know, he had acting skills, and he often ended his sermons in tears. And the thing to, to note, though, is it was very authentic with Whitfield. If you've read about Whitfield, this is who he is. He's not putting on a facade with this. That he, He's a very heartfelt man but what he's doing there is he's creating this subjective element that becomes I would say the defining characteristic of American evangelicalism to this day that spans beyond even conversionism and the altar call so so he's so I'm sorry to interrupt but he's you're saying he's emphasizing the subjective element in the hearers yes okay he's bringing it about he's drawing it out of them okay yes and, it, and but it becomes you know Whitfield is the first celebrity in American history and so you know, he was seen and heard 
uh, some estimates by over half of the people that lived in the 13 colonies during the First Great Awakening. So his effect that he was having is not small. And it's not just people reading his sermons in the newspaper. Many, uh, some would say uh, most, uh, American colonists at some point heard this man and were shaped. Their understanding of Christianity was shaped by what he was doing. So the, the First Great Awakening, one of the things you point out, it was not exclusively one denomination, it was not led by one denomination. You have Whitfield, who's, I mean, he's Church of England. You have the Wesleys, who were Church of England slash Methodist. But you also have Presbyterians like Gilbert Tennant. Mm -hmm. So, and then of course Jonathan Edwards. Yes, the Jonathan Edwards. Uh, so, so you have all of these together. So, there are there's a lot of there's a lot of views on how the first you know what went wrong. Some people would say nothing went wrong with the first Great Awakening, and and maybe I don't like you said earlier. It, it may not be wrong, but it's they were planting seeds, and some of them were not good. So, when you're looking at that, you can't just uh, you can't just say it's all bad. It's kind of like Jesus' parable of of the the wheat and the tares when when the when the farmer plants and then someone comes and sows tares, you know, in the night and servants say, "Do we need to go try to separate?" And Jesus says, "No, don't." I mean, it seemed like the first great awakening. You have this kind, of, you know, there there are some negative things, and that's a difficult jump for some people it is. in our culture because I know for me, George Whitfield is the preeminent man in early American history. He, you know, he's the one that all pastors should aspire to be. When he did a lot of great things. But he was not—he was not perfect either. And I, I know we're not trying to delve into, you know, to, to his flaws. But you know, so he did have struggles. Jonathan Edwards, with whom I—I have this kind of back and forth, not love hate, but but really love, and then love not quite so much, and then go re really love again. So I, I really don't know what to do because he has great points to what he was saying, and then. Whether it's Edwards or whether it's the, what has been emphasized of Edwards in the last 40 years, because with the resurgence of the young, restless, reformed Calvinism, you know, especially with John Piper pushing the Christian hedonism thing, everyone focused on this one part of Edwards, which is, you know, the Let's see uh, his his book on affection. I cannot yeah, remember. Yeah, religious affections. religious affections. Mm -hmm. So everyone emphasizes that, and there's a whole lot more to him. But I, I think to a degree he is. So I guess at this point I'm defending him, just to be perfectly honest. But but he, if you only emphasize that point, I, I personally think there's a lot. There are a lot of other points that we could emphasize where he's stands out much more than just his religious affections treatise. Yes, and I agree. His book, Freedom of the Will, in my mind, is, is, is his best book. And, and, but yeah, one of the things that's happened that I've experienced is in the Reformed world of the last 40 years, right, no one says anything negative about Whitfield 
or Edwards. Right. And it's not that we should be on a crusade to, to destroy people, but they are canonized uh, as saints for American Protestants. And I've never heard really much critique of either uh, that's significant in terms of their theology or their ministry. But yeah, one of the things they're doing in the First Great Awakening is, yeah, there's a lot of good things, but they are, they are I think, establishing a subjectivism as this now immovable feature of American evangelicalism. And that can't be undone. And uh, it's not that there shouldn't be a personal subjective, you know, uh, in terms of uh, there's, there's meaningful faith in each subject. It's not that that shouldn't be part of Christianity. But what I think they're doing is they're largely making that the center of what we now know to be American evangelicalism. And I think that's where the flaw is. Right. And the other thing about the First Great Awakening that I want to make sure and point out is that in, 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 in generic Reformed history, we know those names, but really standing behind, especially Whitfield, are other people that, that probably uh, we're not as familiar with, like Theodore Freelinghusen, who was one of those early leaders in the First Great Awakening. And one of the things he does is he's advocating for conversion-based Christianity, uh, and he's taking some of those elements in the, in the European Reformation, emphasizing the personal confessional necessity in, in, in you know, development of a Christian, but what he does is he defines conversion with a, a very specific three-step process. And this is, this is where you start to see this American cookie-cutter requirement for conversion. And so for Freeling Houston, he defines conversion with these three steps. First, individuals must publicly admit to violating God's law. Second, they must testify to a conscious experience of the new birth. And then third, their life is supposed to result in pious living. And of course, all those are good things. We look at that and say, "That's all, yeah, that's all wonderful." But uh, what he's doing is, is he is very narrowly saying, "Until I see these things in the way I'm outlining them, the church can't declare for sure that you're a Christian." Right. And then Gilbert Tennant comes along, and he is is basically you know, taking what Freeling Houston is doing, and uh, and he's doing something similar. And and what Tennant contributes is he is. Uh, he's really saying we have to have an outward sign before the church can say for sure this person has become a Christian. And that usually had to be a very dramatic or emotional or a certain type of formulaic testimony. And so what Whitfield's doing then is Whitfield's got these incredible oratorical gifts, but he's taking a lot of this narrowing of the definition of conversion and he's applying it to the masses with his gifts. And so I'd argue that standing behind Whitfield are those two men and what they're doing really narrowing the understanding of conversion and in the process combining with Whitfield this kind of the, the subjectivizing of American evangelicalism. And something else I would add also that I, is, and, and this is, it's not the point in your book, but something to just be aware, that people should be aware of, is that early America was already very, I mean we were co- we were 13 colonies we were diverse and the first great awakening did not help ecclesiology at all it did a number on the loyalty of people to their local church because see if this sounds familiar someone says well instead of listening to my pastor who's dry, I can listen to Whitfield or Tennant or, and even in some cases, some of those, and I'm, I'm not accused, I mean, th- th- there were other 
Great Awakening preachers besides just those in, in Frelinghausen, but some actively encouraged people to leave their local church if that local church did not support the work of the Great Awakening, First Great Awakening. So this is not a this is not helpful for the unity of the faith. No, and and I think two things go hand in hand here. You've got the undermining of the local church, like you're talking about. Uh, often Whitfield's preaching out in fields because the local church won't let him in. Obviously, sometimes it's because the crowds are so large. But it's lot, they wouldn't allow him to preach in a Church of England building, for example, in some cases. But you've got this, the subjectivizing of Christianity and the undermining of the local church. And I think those are mutually reinforcing things that are still features of American evangelicalism today. Right. And, right. It's, it's not left. So that's just something to for listeners to, to keep your eye on when whenever you're you're looking at these things because it's not a focal point in the book it perhaps in the application but that we'll get to later on but th- this the seeds for being more loyal to a celebrity teacher or preacher than lo- loyalty to your local church has been in the in, in these United States from early on. Indeed. Now, boy, we could we could get lost here, but you also cannot, I don't think, underemphasize the relationship of the First Great Awakening and, and the rising of democracy and individualism from the American War for Independence, which comes along very soon. I mean, it, it's, it's, it is within, what, 20, 30 years yeah. of the First Great Awakening? Yeah, so, yeah 1740, let's say, if we're going to to 1770, so yes, a lot of the people that were alive in the First Great Awakening were alive during the War for Independence. Right. So, is it possible for you to, to, to just talk briefly about what are some things in the First Great Awakening that contributed to the American War for Independence or to, to the thinking that, that gave us the, you know, the, the, the American colonial, patriotic, anti-British mindset? Yeah. And I think there's a lot of things here. It's hard to say what causes what sure. in my mind, and, and, and maybe there's been some good work on that that can definitively prove this, but I think there's several elements of, of the colonial culture that are all happening within about a 100-year period that shape not only the political stuff, but the religious stuff, like the First and Second Great Awakening. So you've got, you know, the rise of liberal democracy, for example, you know, and so we're Americans, so we love liberty. And the American value of liberty, I guess we would trace it back to, you know, the Mayflower Compact, you know, 1620, those separatists, and they agreed to form a a civil body politic, so you've got self-rule, uh, you know, and so I, I guess you could say that's the seeds of it, though that you probably couldn't draw a direct line from that to say the Constitution. Uh, but but the point is, you've got this notion of liberty early on. Um, but 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 also one of the elements of of American culture that's that's uh, in the 17th and 18th century is uh, that there is a fear of Roman Catholicism that's mixed in here, uh, and this may this may contribute to individualism and liberal democracy as well. And a lot of these colonists uh, who are coming over, they're, they're living in the long shadows of the European imperial wars. And those wars, at least in their minds, were tinged with religious overtones. I think, 
I would argue that really those wars probably weren't as religious as the typical history books right. suggest. But in the minds of a French Huguenot who had just fled, they were. And so, right. however historically accurate it is to say that they were religious wars, in the minds of many American colonists, there was a religious overtone to the imperial wars happening in Europe. And so they feared, I think, Roman Catholicism. You know, you've got the French Huguenots. You know, they come over, they settle in upstate New York, and then they settle in South Carolina, and they, they grow those communities, and they're very religious communities. So you're kind of sowing these seeds where you're distrustful of, of, of Roman Catholicism. So that's a part of American culture. That's kind of a part of the backdrop to a lot of this. You can fast forward to, you know, the eve of the War for Independence. The fear of Roman Catholicism is illustrated when, in April of 1774, the British Parliament passes the Quebec Act, and the Quebec Act uh, returned French civil law to 70,000 French-speaking citizens in Canada. It gave them the right to practice Roman Catholicism, which was which was no small thing in, right. in an English-governed uh, territory, but also what it did was it expanded Quebec's borders down into the Ohio Valley, and that, that was a problem because in 1763, the proclamation of 1763 said that the uh, that the colonists could not go into the Ohio Valley to settle. And so this also riled up people's fears against Roman Catholicism. So, so, so you know, I, I'm throwing that in there because I think that's part of the story when you're talking about the growth and development of liberal democracy. You know, but liberal democracy in America doesn't begin when, you know, when Cornwallis surrenders his troops at Yorktown. It's not like just all of a sudden American liberal democracy is born. There's, there's political developments, there's constitutional developments, and they're all feeding this sort of individual religion that becomes a hallmark of American Christianity. And, but even in the late 1700s, there's still a British mindset, you know, that there's still, you know, they still see the world as hierarchical. They still see, you know, there's patricians and plebeians. In, in other words, there's a class system of sorts. It might not be nobility like in Right. England, but it's you know it's the planter class, and then then the poorer people, you know, and then there's this patriarchal dependence that kind of runs through the strata of society. So there's still those those you know inherited elements from British society, but the seeds of liberty are there, and it's the right. seeds of liberty that you see expressed in the individual subjectivism in the First Great Awakening, and it's all developing over time. So we we move then from. The first Great Awakening, this, so you have it, seventeen forty to you know seventeen sixties or so, uh, correlating with the French Indian War uh, going on simultaneously. Then the War for Independence, which where you see, admittedly, a downgrade in in religious participation. And I, I remember, I, I don't remember who published these, but this, I saw the statistics once on out-of-wedlock births about the time of the American War for Independence had gone up. So there was, uh, people were seeing a problem in the, the morality practiced by many. So then after the war, we eventually you know, we have our independence, and then you, you early 1800s, you see the, the seeds that are, that come of the Second Great Awakening. So, so talk about what was the Second Great Awakening, and and how we really start seeing the rise of the the, the classic altar call mm -hmm. and and conversionism. Yeah, and and underlying so much of that is that notion of individualism that 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 you just mentioned. 
and that is developing during during this time period. And, and so I think the rise of individualism is playing out both politically and religiously at the same time in the late 1700s and early 1800s. And a lot of it is coming out of the war for independence. You've got, you know, in the political arena, the American colonist fought against, in their minds, you know, the oppressive and hierarchical authority of the British government. Um, in the, the religious arena, the colonists, though, were also shifting away from Calvinism. And, you know, so in, we can't define Calvinism exhaustively, but in Calvinism, God is the final determining factor in salvation. Uh, but that was being displaced in favor of Arminianism, where the human will, the human subject, was the final determining factor in salvation. And I think there are parallels to be drawn here, because in the hunt for political independence, they cast off the king. They cast off King George III. But good Christians, uh, in the hunt for religious independence, they can't cast off the heavenly king. They still have to claim that, that God is their heavenly king. So they're saying, well, we still maintain our allegiance to that king, our heavenly king. But then theologically, they're, they're, they're putting the supreme authority uh, in the human will. And I think one word to describe all of that is just confusion. I think there's a lot of theological confusion happening as they transfer from um, Calvinism to uh, to Arminianism during the same time period. So they don't have guardrails. I mean, so, 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 so they're in some ways set up for a further downgrade theologically. Yes, and that's exactly what's happening during this time. And there's this uh, Baptist named Elias Smith who in 1819 said this. He said, we must be wholly free to examine for ourselves what is true without being bound to a catechism, creed, confession of faith, discipline, or any rule excepting the scriptures. And I think that right there explains so much uh, coming out of the war for independence and now applying it to what we see now in history as the second great awakening. That explains a lot of the, I'm not saying he was weird or cultic, but that explains a lot of the the heretical groups that came out of the Second Great Awakening, they had the exact same view that we're, we're going to defy what's been handed to us historically by the church in the creeds and confessions, and we all want to read our Bible as individuals. Yes. That's right. And you mentioned earlier the, the guardrails come down, and that's why you see in upstate New York the burned over district. Uh, when you have radical subjectivism applied to religion, applied to Christianity, and there's no guardrails, this is where you start to see the birth of new religions that are often parading around as Christianity. So we've got Mormonism, and we've got some of the other... Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses. You've got several different groups forming during that, during that time period. Right. So the name most often associated with the Second Great Awakening is Charles Finney. Now, he did not do this by himself, but he's, significant, he's a significant influence, and you give him a lot of attention in your book. So, so tell us about Charles Finney and, and, and his contribution to what we have today. Yeah, and so this is really where we should start to think some specifically about the altar call itself. Um, and, of course, so the altar call, is, as most people probably know, but it's just, it's just when the minister... Uh, usually after the sermon, uh, calls people forward to be saved. And there's usually a process there, depending on what faith tradition is using the altar call, but the person has to come forward. Uh, in modern times, that means signing a card that was innovated by a man named Wilbur Chapman 
Uh, he basically invented the decision card that is, is still in use today in conversionism circles. Uh, sign a card, you pray the sinner's prayer, which most people who have been to church more than several times could probably recite the American version of the sinner's prayer. Uh, and make, make some, and, and then the minister presents you to the church as you know, this, this person has been saved. So that's an altar call. Uh, in, the, in some of the earlier forms, it was called the anxious bench or the mourner's bench because what they did was they would set a bench at the very front and the person who came forward would be sat on the mourner's bench and there would actually be a counseling session there. And I would say actually this is far better than what it became because there was actually some pastoral attention being given to the person. Uh, now it was in a very condensed amount of time so it probably wasn't sufficient, but at least they were getting some spiritual counseling on the mourner's bench or the anxious bench. So, so you've got those developments of the altar call before Finney, and a lot of people think you know Charles Finney invented the altar call, but he's not the Edison of the altar call. You know, if you go back in history, and I detail this in the book, you know, the first altar call may have happened in 1740s, and I say may because I think the historical record on that particular event is a little dicey, but certainly by the 1770s, there's things in the historical record that sound very much like an altar call. People are coming forward to be saved, much in the, proce in the process I just described. And so that's happening largely in camp meetings, in the early stages of the Second Great Awakening. So the early stages of the Second Great Awakening is the late 1700s. Camp meetings in what they called you know, the frontier, but think like Kentucky, uh, you know, just kind of going down into that area. Yeah. And so they're, they're having things like the altar call. And, and one of the, the key developments before Finney, but that Finney then exploits, is by a man named James McGreedy. Uh, James McGreedy, who was a, a Presbyterian, uh, but he, uh, he innovated the notion of having a datable conversion experience. And that continues on in American culture. Like when you talk about someone being a Christian, they feel like they have to tell you the day they were converted. And Matt, you've done a lot of membership interviews. I can't tell you how many times I've done a membership interview with someone. Ask them just, hey, tell me about how you came to Christ. And they almost feel like they have to apologize because yes. they can't give me the date. Yes, yes. You know, so this still lives on even for people who've never been in a church that um, practices the altar call. But that, that is a unique innovation by James McGreedy, and it's stuck. And what McGreedy did was he took what Freelinghausen and Tennant did and Whitfield did and he then said, but you've got to have a dateable conversion experience. He had five protégés that he groomed and sent them out with this is what you have to you know, emphasize when you're doing these altar calls. And so that starts to spread. So when, when Charles Finney comes along, you know, he's working in upstate New York originally in the 1820s. Uh, he comes to faith as a young man. He was trained to be a lawyer. He had incredible gifts, charismatic gifts, but he also had authority. Uh, and he, and his, he, when you read the descriptions of Finney, you can tell he had a presence, on, and, and he had this charismatic effect on people. He was tall, he was six foot two, so for his day and age that was a tall man, he, he was attractive, he had these china blue eyes, he just had this presence, and that no doubt was, was part of, of, of his appeal, uh, but he was a very intense man, intense with his emotions, and so he starts using this altar call method to great effect. Mass numbers of people responding to it, uh, he starts traveling around, and so I mean, his ministry lasts for a very long time. You know, he starts in the 1820s as a young man, but he's still going full full bore in the 1860s. He starts colleges and reform movements, so he's he's the central figure of the Second Great Awakening because of his outsized influence. And he starts to make the altar call normative, and you start to see the altar call relocated from just a revival, a special event, to now being practiced more so in a local church week by week. 
And that that's slow. I mean, that you know, it takes generations for that to become the assumed expectation. But you start to see it relocated into local churches because Finney was so successful. And who wouldn't want to replicate that success? And Finney argues in his book, Lectures on Revival, he basically says, listen, if you're a pastor and your church isn't having revival, you're to blame. If you want to have revival, here's what you do. And he gives them the list, and central on the list is how to do an effective altar call. So I, I remember I was a teenager. I was 18 before I visited a church that did not have an altar call. And I was very surprised. It was a Presbyterian church. It was a PCA, but they were, they were, this is PCA now 23 years ago. Pastor was very conservative. That that the, they were, the, this man, I mean, the, they were, it was essentially a liturgical service. And, and it was very impressive, but they didn't have that at the end. And I thought, what do they do? You know, how do people become Christians here? Because... They didn't. He just gave a benediction, and that was it. So, also with with Finney, I mean, his training as a lawyer helped him because he knew how to argue cases. He knew how to lock down every component, every part of a case, arguing it, trying to persuade a jury to you know to, to make a particular choice so he used the same methods in preaching that you you make sure that there's no avenue left for this person and but then I, I know you you mentioned in his later ministry when they stopped having as many conversions and you know when, when he would call people to come to the front, if you wanted to become a Christian, then he made another innovation mm -hmm. in order to encourage, uh, let's say, put, put it nicely, to encourage people to come. So, so, yes. so talk about that. Yes, and so by that point, everyone had walked to the front and been saved many times. <laughs> there wasn't that many people in these areas. They'd all been to these revivals before. And after a while, people stopped responding to the altar call. And this was a problem because Finney at this point in time, in, in the 1860s, he'd written publicly, he was a seminary professor, he'd founded a seminary, you know, and so they're not responding, that means it's not effective, it doesn't work. Remember, who's to blame right. if, if people aren't coming forward? It's the minister's fault. So in January of 1868, Finney introduces a new subtle twist on the altar call that has continued on in the American altar call tradition, uh, and, and that is where... Uh, he basically made it such that everyone in the room eventually is going to have their hand up or be standing up for some reason or another. Uh, and so, um, you know, he says, you know, if, you, if, you, if, you've, if you've already responded, you stand up. Or, you know, so he'll, right. he'll flip it, or um, he'll, he'll call on those who are willing to take a stand and commit to Christ publicly for some particular cause right. to stand up. Right. Or eventually you start to see the, the innovation of what's called the rededication. Yes. You know, for someone who, who maybe had walked forward at, a, at an altar call 20 years ago, but now they're not as excited about Christ as they used to be. If you, want, yeah, if you want to rededicate your life, then you can come forward and we'll basically just do it all again. And this is where you know, most people who have been in the culture of conversionism, they've not said the sinner's prayer only once. Right. They've not been saved only once. They, yes. They've been rededicated you know, and, and gone through this process maybe several times. 
and that's a that's a built-in feature that that largely comes with Charles Finney. I remember so so I made a public profession of faith was baptized when I was seven, and I, I remember thinking at one point when I was a young kid, not very long after I'd been baptized, I need to rede- I need to, to rededicate my life. But if I but I don't know that I've waited long enough because some of the people I see rededicating their life have already, you know, it's been a while. So I may just, I mean, it actually crossed my mind. I may just need to rededicate my life once every few weeks, but I'm just going to do it to my, between myself and God. So, you know, thankfully then, eventually I read Luther in his 95 Theses where he said, we are called to live lives of daily repentance. So good news for Christians, we get to rededicate our lives every day. Yes, and that's the, that's the thing. is that Largely what the typical rededication is is just someone who needs to repent right. of sin uh, or maybe just a particular direction of their life. And that should be a pretty ordinary part of the Christian life, yes. repenting. We yes. should be the repenters, and this is regular in Christian life. Something that occurred to me also when I was reading is calling people forward at the end of a service. It was not a new thing in the history of the church. But it was not in the past for the first 1,500, 1,600 years of Christendom. It was not coming forward at the end to be converted. You, you were called forward to take the supper. You would come forward every week for in, in, in many cases until the you know mid middle medieval period or so they would have you know communion every week and they would come forward so so coming forward was not a new idea but the the point of it was new whereas in the past it was you come forward to receive the gifts of Christ which was a sacrament and historically the church Roman Catholic, Protestant, you know, they, they all take that as a sacramental gift. But now, when the American evangelicals divorced the church, largely, I mean, we, they, they didn't divorce the church from the sacraments, but they they largely stripped the sacraments of any, of any sacramental power. I mean, even in Baptist circles, most Baptists don't use the term sacrament. Oh no, it's an ordinance. Uh, it, it is an ordinance, an ordinance only. You even see that in, in, in the, the the London Baptist Confession calls it an ordinance. All the other confessions at the time, the Savoy Declaration, the Westminster Confession, and, and the 39 Articles of Anglicanism, it's all, they're sacraments. Meaning that, that they confer God's grace. But what is unstated in these altar calls is the conversion, what they're calling people to, is a sacramental act. Yes. And several have pointed this out over the years. I think E. Roll Holson, one of his books, uh, makes, makes this point that, yes, it's, it's the new sacramentalism. You know, that, that you can't strip away the sacramental needs of the faith. And so since we've, you know, since we've said baptism's that thing that doesn't save you, uh, the Lord's Supper is that thing we do quarterly, and we don't even really know why, and it certainly doesn't transfer grace to you. Right. Um, 
So then what have we done? We've replaced it with this altar call or this the culture of conversionism, notions of conversion. And yeah, it's basically the new sacrament because if you don't do it this way, dateable conversion experience in this certain cookie cutter way, you're not saved. Well, what does that sound like? That sounds like the Roman Catholic yes. sacerdotal system and, yes. and what we would all say is the abuses of the sacraments yes. in the medieval period. Yes. You have sinner's prayer. If you've not you know, said it, then there's a problem. And now, of course, there also there's a lot more we can get to, and I, but we we need to move on to some of the applications for today. But you know, there were people like I think John Williamson Nevin, who wrote against the anxious bench. I mean, he even, he even has a book called The Anxious Bench where he talks about the problems with Finney's measures. That's right. And, and Nevin, so by the 1840s, so the anxious bench came out in 1843 or 1844, and J.W. Nevin was, was basically one of the public opponents of Finney. And there were, there were several who, who looked at Finney's measures, and of course Finney was you know, denying original sin and had a lot of theological problems where he was, you know, he, it would, there was a lot to find wrong with his theology, and Nevin was one. But Nevin had two, I think, really insightful critiques of what Finney was doing, not just with the altar call, but with the whole culture of conversionism. And so what you've got with Nevin is it, one of his criticisms is that he said, well, when you're calling people forward in this way, what you're doing is you're confusing what it means to come to Christ. You're calling people forward to do this thing instead of calling people to Christ. And he said that's it's a significant effect on the mind of the person. You know, so that was one of uh, uh, Nevin's critiques of Finney and, and just the culture of conversionism in general. But one of the other things, and this is I think maybe even more insightful, one of Nevin's critiques in that book is he points out that there's really this legalistic tension within the culture of conversionism that he, he argues it really hinders godliness. And, and, and then of course 40 years later J.C. Ryle comes along and he doesn't do a lot of direct treatment on culture of conversionism but when he does critique it it is very effective and he picks up on Nevin's arguments and basically Nevin is saying these people come forward to Christ in this very heightened emotional state um, and it, what it does is it's a very shallow thing that's going on and so you create, even if the faith sticks, and that was not a given, even if the faith sticks, it be, develops a very shallow face, uh, faith. He, he described it as this whirlwind process that does not set up well for a, someone to grow into a mature Christian. And I think just the facts of history of the culture of conversionism have bore that out. In fact, Finney himself later in life admitted Yes, there's a lot of people falling away that responded to my altar calls, and Finney lamented this. You know, so so even even the practitioners themselves were noticing the problem. Uh, it, and again, it goes back to the subjective nature. If right. it's just subjective and it's emotional, uh, then it can be blown away just as quickly as it came in. And, and and I want to say that at least for my own sake, I'm not claiming that Finney was not a Christian, or that he was trying to. To, to just make money, or I, I, I'm not saying that he's the equivalent of an 18th century or of a 19th century televangelist that he had. A, I don't know, uh, he, but he he introduced though a lot of negative elements, a lot of negative elements, yeah, in the Christian culture. So now, we could talk certainly about those who came after. You have D.L. Moody, you have Billy Sunday, and then of course the most well-known is Billy Graham, and 
again, that's I'm not purposely trying to avoid talking about them because, especially with Billy Graham, I mean, he had a tremendous influence on Christianity worldwide, and I have no doubt that there's a lot of people who are believers because of his ministry, but they were all following the precedent set by Charles Finney That's in right. the Second Great Awakening. Absolutely, and it, it is a line. You can draw the line from we just look at the big name figures from Finney to Moody, then to Billy Sunday, and then to Billy Graham. You can draw a line. They're all operating in that same legacy of altar call culture. And yes, and I, I don't want to be quick to besmirch Billy Graham, especially of those four. You know, he's a very honorable man and has done a lot of great things. But he largely comes in when he starts his crusades in the in the late 1940s in Los Angeles. He's just assuming the culture of conversionism. Right. You know, he didn't know any different. By that point, but of course what he does is because of his, his worldwide fame is he, he normalizes it so that by the time you, know, you get to the mid-20th century, it is the basic assumption of how you become a Christian in American evangelicalism, even in Reformed churches. Right. Now I cannot remember, was, was Billy Graham a Presbyterian or Baptist? I thought he was a Southern Baptist, but I could be wrong. I, well, I think it changes over time, and I forget. I think he does start with a, a Presbyterian influence. Okay, uh, but then eventually works into more of the Baptist circles. Because I believe he went to Wheaton. He did, and, and I know his wife did. But I I do remember before he died, an interesting interview. He said he was asked if he had to do it over again, what church would he be a part of? And he said, I think I would be Anglican. Really, I've not heard that. That's interesting. Yes. I remember reading that interview, and he didn't go into a lot of specifics, but I, that left, I, at that time, I was leaving being a Baptist, I was becoming paedo-Baptist, and I just thought, that is so interesting, mm-hmm. that that this man would do that, and, and if, again, listeners can, can, can look it up, I, I'm sure it's probably somewhere available online, but... That, that he would go with that rather than a more typical evangelical denomination. Interesting. So, we've said that th- these are things that, and, and I'm, I'm in agreement with you, th- these have all been harmful. The conversionism culture is harmful, but also we would say that we support evangelism. That's right. We, 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 this is not... It's not a question of either. Well, so the story is attributed once to to D.L. Moody when when someone said, "I don't like your methods of evangelism," and Moody supposedly said, "I like the way that I'm doing it better than the way you're not doing it." So, you know, so that is a common comeback. Yes. For for anyone who criticizes. So, what is Jason the alternative to the culture of conversionism that dominates? American evangelical churches. Yeah. What is the alternative to it? And it's not just try to remain the frozen chosen and don't tell anybody. So Right. And, and I'm glad you point out that there is a lot of good qualities there. And I think the best quality of the culture of conversionism is there is an urgency for salvation for people who are lost. And that is biblical and good and right. And we should all have an urgency for that. Uh, and it should be a primary part of the church's work and ministry and care. So that is one of the 
one of the, the best elements uh, of the culture of conversionism. And But one of the problems with the culture of conversionism is it fails to distinguish that not everyone is converted the same way. You know, in, in, in church history, the overwhelming majority of people who become Christians inherit it from their parents. They're raised in Christian homes, they're raised in the church, uh, and they're nurtured in that context. And so their coming to Christ is very different from a Damascus Road crisis conversion experience. And so I think that's, that's where the, we kind of have to round out the, the, the critique here, is that uh, crisis conversion can be a very real thing. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's not that that doesn't exist. The problem is that that almost never exists for a church kid who's raised in the church with a good family and a good church. They don't experience crisis conversion uh, like you might see at a camp meeting uh, in, in the, in the right. 1790s. They come to Christ gradually. They're part of the covenant, and they're maturing up into that, and that is a gradual thing that it most certainly isn't going to have a dateable conversion experience. Right. And, and when we're preaching, because you and I both preach, we alternate every, every other week at the church, when we are preaching... There is a call usually to people to come to faith, to put trust in Christ. Because, like right now, you're preaching through Mark, and I just finished preaching on Leviticus. And interestingly, there were actually opportunities preaching through Leviticus to call people to faith. So, and now preaching on on. The nurture, you know, what it means to bring up children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So, you know, certainly parents want to hear what should I, what should I push my kids towards? Do, do, you know, do, what, what do they need? Do they need to be saved? Which we would certainly say yes. They need Christ, absolutely. They're born sinners. Yes, they need to be redeemed from that. Yes. And, you know, even if they are, you know, as Pado-Baptists, you, you and I are Pado-Baptists, we believe in baptizing our children because they're members of the covenant. But just because they're baptized does not mean that we ignore the, their need for faith. So, so, so we encourage our kids to believe. That's right. And we, and we teach them and train them and nurture them. And, and yes, yeah, so... If, if a child is, is baptized as, as, as an infant, uh, they're receiving that covenant sign. In, in Pentecost, when Peter is preaching the gospel of the new covenant, he says in Acts 2.37, this is for you and your children. So the children are included in the covenant. They're part of the covenant. So therefore, they must receive the sign of the covenant. That would be strange that Peter would say they're part of this, but they shouldn't receive the sign. So it starts with them receiving the covenant sign. And then they're growing into what that is. They're, they're, they're growing up to confirm the truth of God's choosing them right. and uh, you know, giving them that covenant sign. And so the idea for parents, I, I think it is, even, so even in Reformed churches in America today, there is still this idea that, that our children need to have a conversion moment. And, and it's very difficult to shake free from the culture of conversionism because it's all around us, even if you're in a church that is, you know, that is a Reformed church. And you see this in a lot of Reformed churches that even practice paedo-baptism where they place a lot of importance on this public profession of faith. It usually goes through a long process, and it's usually done publicly, and then that's how they're admitted into the Lord's Supper. But the problem there is they're, they're, they're either suggesting or outright saying, 
we're now able to confidently say with the authority of the church that this 12-year-old who's been through the catechism class and is now standing before you is a Christian. Well, what are they doing? Well, they're just playing out of what the culture of conversionism created. We have to say there's a particular time where the church can confidently say they're a Christian. And the problem with that is, is when you're baptized with the, with the covenant sign, the process of conviction of sin and repentance is ongoing. The process of being convinced of the truth of who God is, that the Bible is His Word, and then being trained in the habits of Christian virtue, it happens in such a way that it's slow and it's gradual. And if you're looking at, say, a 14-year-old that's been in this process, it's almost impossible to say, well, when they were seven, they really weren't converted, but now at age 10, they are. That's just, that's just not what's naturally happening. And what's really interesting, too, is uh, there's been some studies done um, back in the 90s when the culture of conversionism was still at its height, and 94% of Baptist churches were still giving altar calls. And it was a study done in those Baptist churches, and it was showing that even though they were requiring the kids raised in that church to, to thread the needle of this conversionism altar call experience, you know, to be saved, you have to walk down the aisle and pray the prayer and, and, and you know, do all the pageantry of that. Actually, the process of them becoming a Christian, just being involved in the church, going to Sunday school, living in their home with their parents, sitting under the preaching and teaching of the word and the ministry of the church, they were actually experiencing gradual conversion. But what happens there is the parents start to get really frustrated because they're trying to have a moment, right. a dateable moment, where we can now say definitively, you're a Christian. When that's not how it naturally happens for most kids raised in a covenant community. And we never see this in scripture Old Testament or New Testament with kids we do not see this and, and even if we just think about our own kids you have two daughters I have four kids three daughters and a son neither of us tell our kids alright we're going to raise you in this home but before we actually claim, before we're going to give you our last name, you're going to have to prove that you want to be in this family and that you are bearing fruit worthy of being in this family. Okay? Now, if a parent does that, any parent who makes a newborn child prove that they should have that last name, uh, you're going to be hauled in for, for, for abuse. That's right. You know, that, now again, I'm not saying, do not misunderstand, I'm not saying that it is spiritual abuse to, to believe that your kids need to be converted. That's, that is not the point. But the grace that is given to them in being raised in a Christian family is real grace. Right. So, and it's working their salvation. Yes. And it might not be instantaneous or sudden. Yes. Yeah. And so, and, and I would add to that. Not only is it, is that not how parents parent their kids today, even in a secular home, but that's not how the children in the covenant in the old covenant were treated. They right. weren't said, "Well, you can't have the name of God. You can't be an Israelite until right. you prove it." Right. At a certain age. So for thousands of years, that's not how children raised in God's covenant community were treated either. Right. So it was it was expected you have for the males, you have the sign. 
for the females, you know, there's still there's particular washings that they would go through, you know, all of these things. So they would. Th there's all kinds of uh, symbols that that you had. So this was the expectation, and you were only removed if you chose to if you removed yourself through your actions. And no one ever said, do you have a dateable time when you became a member of God's covenant people? It was just either you're in the covenant or you're not. And I would argue that the new covenant is the same. I mean, they were told in the old covenant, circumcise your hearts. We're told that we'll have circumcised hearts. That they, so, so, so where we try to make discontinuity I believe that there's still overarching continuity. Yes, and I think those are the right words to use too. Um, and, and and I would like you know is, is there's a lot of confusion still in the American church, even in Reformed churches that practice infant baptism, about exactly how should parents nurture their kids. You know, and and I think if I could give some central advice to parents who are in that context, you've got kids, they've received the covenant sign, they're, they're being raised in a healthy Christian home, in a healthy Christian church, healthy Christian schooling opportunities, that the main thing we need to do is we need to, uh, we need to shake free from this notion that you're supposed to have a dateable Damascus Road moment. Your kids don't need that to be converted. And, and one of the things, if we could learn some lessons from history, is in the middle of the 19th century, you have Charles Hodge, one of the leading reformed figures of this time period, and he was critical of the altar call movement, the culture of conversionism. And in 1847, Hodge, who was commenting on Horace Bushnell's book, Discourses on Christian Nurture, uh, Hodge is making the case for gradual conversion, for having a category, a pastoral category, when you're dealing with your kids of gradual conversion. And you know, so Hodge is interacting with Bushnell, and Bushnell had argued that the ideal Christian conversion for a kid raised in a Christian home is a gradual experience where they're there, they're surrounded by the activity of the church, the ministry of the church, the covenant community, living in a, a new covenant gospel culture uh, established by the parents leading them in the home. And in that scenario, uh, the child eventually works up to, yes, they can make a profession of faith, and that's good, and we should be happy when children profess their faith um, but when you look back on it, that profession of faith is not the moment of conversion. Uh, it's hard to know when they were right. converted. That's just one step of, of, of many. And so these children, they're raised in the covenant community, really think of it as your job as a parent is to marinate them in gospel culture, in a new covenant culture. And when you're doing that, there's not necessarily going to be a dramatic or obvious change in the child's life, you know, it's not a hardened alcoholic, you know, repenting of their alcoholism and turning to Christ. You know, they're not being transformed from persecutor of the gospel to preacher of the gospel like Paul was. This is a very different context for them in this Christian upbringing. And so, if we can just shake free, you know, parents should feel free to not have to have a dateable conversion experience. The idea is to let's sow faith, let's sow faithfulness and let's show them and teach them what it means to be a Christian. And by the time they're old enough, they're going to be a Christian, Lord willing. That's, that's very helpful because if, if we as parents give our kids grace, if we, if we give them the sacraments, 
we raise them in the church. We we teach them the gospel. We love them. We discipline them as needed. And we strive to live ourselves a life that they should follow. We can trust God's promises. That, as Jesus said in John 3, the wind, Greek word can mean, you know, wind, spirit, is blows where it will. You can't see where it's come from and where it's going. And so I've told many parents, trust the holy wind of God in these budding trees that you're bringing up, in these, these, these young saplings, these olive plants around your table. Trust the wind to blow as he sees fit. And don't, don't worry about it. Lead them to Christ as often as you can, and don't worry. So, yeah. And I would just say one final thing on this. This is such an important issue, and that is, you know, the reason. There are several reasons I wanted to research this topic and publish this book, but the central theological reason was, is I was haunted by the high fallaway rate of people raised in the culture of conversionism. We've all seen the statistics; it's very high, and. What, I, what I'm convinced of, I'm deeply persuaded of the fact that how someone becomes a Christian in the culture of conversionism is directly feeding the high fallaway rate. And this is something, again, that Charles Hodge wrote about. And he observed that the individuals converted gradually within the church in this way we're talking about now, as opposed to just the pressure of some sort of dramatic conversion. But the children that were converted gradually, nurtured gradually, they avoided the high fallaway rates that were begotten by conversionism and Finney especially. That's so that should be an encouragement to parents. Yes. yes. Well, Jason, this has been really good. This is really helpful. Uh, again, the, the title of the book is The Culture of Conversionism and the History of the Altar Call. It's available on Amazon, and if you get a chance, it's, it's on Kindle, it's in paperback. It's well worth your time. It's not hard, but it is very sound in explaining how we arrived where we are and also at the end some, some helpful pastoral points for us when we consider how do we raise our own kids. So thanks, Jason, for, for talking with us. Yeah, thank you.